If you take two different people and expose them to the virus, some people get sicker than others. Some people don't even get sick at all. Why is it that that is the case? And there must be something about that individual. So we hypothesized that maybe it had to do with diet. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities coast to coast. Alva, Florida, Cloverdale, California, Copenhagen, Denmark. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 43 of season 5, number 342 overall. Shifting our attention back to COVID-19, that is what we will be doing today as we speak with Dr. Andy Chan. He is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School as well as a professor of immunology and infectious diseases at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. But more to the point today... He is also co-author of an enormous study of more than 600,000 people that explores the link between the pandemic and the food we are eating. The title of his research? Diet Quality and Risk and Severity of COVID-19. So we are going to learn why people eating a plant-based diet are less likely to become severely ill when they are infected, but also... Interestingly, why they're less likely to become infected at all. Why is that? And that is one of the key takeaways from this research. And who can really maximize these benefits, right? That's part of the keyword that's in the title of the study. Quality. Talking about quality of diet. So if you're eating an Impossible Whopper and fries from Burger King every day, are you able to fight off COVID in the same way as someone who is eating a more whole food plant-based diet, right? So it's not a meat whopper, it's still a plant-based whopper, but do you still get the same benefits of somebody who may have opted for, say, a black bean burger? Also on tap, comparing the effect of diet to other COVID-19 prevention measures the inflammatory response of certain foods, the best foods for building a strong immune response, and how much does lifestyle play in all of this? What is the overall effect there? Lots of good questions as we're once again unfortunately seeing cases and hospitalizations tick upward during this pandemic. So hopefully we're going to be getting some good answers and insight on how we can all keep moving forward and taking these steps together to put the pandemic behind us. Here now, the conversation with Dr. Andy Chan. My friend, so good to see you. Nice to see you, Chuck. This is such an important topic, and I know it's one that you'll be speaking about coming up at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, August 18th through the 20th here in Washington, D.C., talking about COVID-19 and diet. But I don't think, Dr. Chan, we can get into this discussion today without first defining what epidemiology is, because I think that that is going to play a key role in our discussion today. So what is epidemiology for those who aren't yet familiar? Well, I think uh, more and more people are becoming familiar with epidemiology as it's really taken on an important role uh, through the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, essentially, epidemiology is really the study of the incidence of disease. 
and we apply this term to uh, refer to you know studying the uh, development of a disease of any type, uh, and largely it's to be able to identify incidence of disease in, in populations. With the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, really the term took on kind of a new significance because what we really were struggling to do when COVID-19 first hit was really describe and understand the epidemiology of COVID-19. What that really meant was where is COVID-19 occurring? Where are we having outbreaks of it? Where is the you know, incidence of the disease rising? And also more broadly, epidemiology is trying to understand risk factors for disease. And of course, this became particularly pertinent for COVID-19 because as a new disease and as a new virus, people really understood very little about it and sort of what, uh, what was the uh, likelihood of developing COVID-19, what were uh, some of the risk factors for getting the, the virus, uh, what were the risk factors for getting sick with the virus, so um, epidemiology really is a study of the incidence of disease and its risk factors uh, and, and applying that uh, uh, methodology to get at those questions uh, and be able to help uh, physicians ultimately understand the disease better and uh, treat patients. Uh, so I like to think of it kind of as a uh, kind of 360 view of medicine in which, we, in which we, instead of kind of focusing on an individual patient, we're focusing more on sort of the broad population and trying to understand what is the broad population experiencing. And then based on that, we can get more information to help you know, apply principles and treat our patients more directly. All right. So when you want to take a look at the broad population, you're going to need a lot of data to do that. And you were one of the authors of a study that just examined an enormous amount of data, talking about more than 600,000 people in terms of their risk of COVID-19 and their diet. So um, one of the big topics of conversation historically on the exam room, Dr. Chan, has been uh, the risk of chronic disease for someone who eats the standard American diet that is high in fat, high in calories, low in nutrient density versus somebody who eats a healthier plant-based diet, which is lower in fat, lower in calories, but has a way, way, way higher ratio of nutrients there. So in terms of COVID-19, how does somebody eating the standard American diet compare to somebody who's eating that healthier plant-based diet? Yeah, so I think you pointed out a few important components of this research, Chuck. I think one of the challenges when COVID-19 started was, you know, we didn't understand the disease. It was so new, it kind of hit us so quickly that we really had to collect a lot of data very quickly to really understand what was going on, both in terms of where it was occurring, where we we're having, you know, outbreaks, what were the risk factors for it, how likely were people to get infected, how likely were people who were infected going to get sick. So all of that really hit us so quickly that we needed to really respond quickly and develop uh, data in a very uh, uh, rapid manner. And one of the real key ideas about epidemiology is that we have a better sense of what's going on if we collect data from a larger group of people. And so as you point out, uh, when we wanted to study some of these questions, we really needed to have data from a large group of people and a large number of people, which is what made this study so unique. We were able to collect data from over 600,000 people 
in real time, get it really uh, in early on in the pandemic, process that data, analyze it, and turn it back around to hopefully help inform the public health response. And one of the central questions was, how is it that people are at risk for COVID? I think we know for, for, from sort of our, our, um, our rear view mirror that, you know, if you take two different people and expose them to the virus, some people get sicker than others. Some people don't even get sick at all. And so why is it that that is the case? And there must be something about that individual that either protects them from COVID-19 or makes them more susceptible to COVID-19. So we hypothesized uh, that maybe it had to do with diet. And as you mentioned, there is a lot of interest in diet in terms of its risk for, as, as a risk factor for the development of, of chronic diseases. And I'm sure uh, many of your uh, audience knows we have really good data already that diet you know, is important and plays a role in the development of diabetes, obesity, heart disease, cancer. And so it stood to reason maybe diet also has an important role in predicting whether someone's going to get COVID-19 or get sick from COVID-19. So what do all these different things have in common? Well, we know that diet tends to be associated with these chronic diseases through probably what we think of as more of an inflammatory pathway. We think that, for example, a typical American diet or a Western diet tends to be what we call pro-inflammatory. The foods that are in an American diet that have a lot of fat, have a lot of of, uh, red meat, concentrated sweets, all of that tends to create more of a pro-inflammatory environment in your body. You can actually look at studies and see that people who eat very high levels of fatty foods, concentrated sweets, will have higher levels of pro-inflammatory markers in their blood or markers of inflammation. And so it's been felt that diseases like diabetes and cancer and heart disease tend to be pro-inflammatory, that an inflammatory environment of the body tends to predispose those uh, different diseases uh, uh, to, to, for, to develop. Um, so we thought, well, in many ways, COVID-19 was behaving like an inflammatory disease. If you think about it early on, uh, particularly when we were dealing with some of the very sickest patients, those were patients that were getting very, very uh, sick because they were uh, having inflammation uh, really go haywire in their lungs, in their heart, in their kidneys. And so we were seeing patients ending up in the ICU, not so much because they were getting just the virus, but the virus was triggering this kind of inflammatory response in their bodies. And when that inflammatory response gets started, that can really be what gets someone sick and in trouble. So we thought, well, if diet is a mediator of inflammation, maybe diet uh, could also mediate the risk of getting COVID-19 or getting sick from COVID-19. If we could assess whether a diet that we think is more pro-inflammatory or a diet that is more anti-inflammatory um, uh, maybe what we can use to kind of predict whether someone's going to either develop the COVID-19 or get infected, from, uh, get sicker from it. Uh, so that was really the basis for the analysis that we did to understand, is that the case based on what we already know about diet and its association with heart disease, diabetes, et cetera? Well, let me ask you this. I, I think that there, there's a, a larger percentage of the population that would understand, okay, well, if I'm healthier, 
uh, overall, if I do become infected, I've got a better chance of fighting this thing off. You know, they look at it just kind of like the common cold, which for some people, it's really going to knock them for the loop. For other people who are relatively healthy, you know, you get the sniffles for a day or two, and then you're able to move on with your life. No big deal. Um, but I think some people get hung up with the idea, as you were just saying, of not becoming infected whatsoever. So when you're looking at this data, were you able to discern, you know, how much of that is 100% attributable to the diet versus maybe somebody who is really health conscious then also was employing other mitigating factors such as, you know, they're more likely to socially distance, they're more likely to wear a mask, they're more likely to isolate, all of those other things. You know, do, were you able to look at that also when you were putting this study together? It's a very fair point. So one of the I think trickiest things about the work that we do in epidemiology is trying to disentangle all of these different factors in trying to understand what is a, a, a real independent risk factor for a disease. So good case in point is, uh, you know, if we look at, for example, the risk of smoking and lung cancer, um, very few people have any disagreement that smoking causes lung cancer. I think that's pretty well established because it's just such a strong risk factor. The studies have been done time and time again, and there's clear correlation between um, the smoke, uh, smoking or how much you smoke and the development of lung cancer. There's also something that we call biological plausibility. That link between smoking and lung cancer also seems to be um, plausible when you think about what the smoke is doing to the, to the cells of your body. And that's based on experiments that people do in the lab, that's based on animal studies, studies in cell lines, and they've shown pretty clearly that smoke and the effects of smoke on you know, what, what it's doing to, to cells or what it's doing to animals is going to potentially cause cancer. So the fact that you have very strong studies that consistently link smoking to can uh, lung cancer and also biological plausibility in the form of experimental data and animal studies that show the specific you know, biological effects of that smoke on uh, those tissues um, really has made it 100% clear to us that there is a specific cause and effect link between smoking and lung cancer. But when we think about other factors like diet, that's where we run into more of a challenge because you're right. Diet is not something that we can study in isolation in a population. People who eat a diet also do a lot of other things. They uh, have different levels of exercise. They may or may not smoke. They you know, may work certain kinds of jobs. They may have different exposures uh, to environmental pollution. So when we look at an association with diet and a disease, we have to try to figure out, is it the diet that's causing the association with the disease, or is it some other factor that's linked up with that diet? And we call that confounding. So for example, is someone who eats a healthy diet more likely also to be someone who doesn't smoke or exercises more? And is it the smoking and the exercise, lack of smoking and the exercise, that's the reason why uh, that people with a healthier diet seem to have a lower risk of a disease? So in order to approach that, what we do is we have to assess all those factors as well. And we account for those factors in our analysis. So we do an analysis where we account for the effect of smoking on our outcome. We account for the effect of 
of exercise on our outcome, or we account for all these other things that we think probably also may be important risk factors to consider. And after the, doing an analysis where we account for all those factors, there still seems to be an effective diet that creates a little more certainty in our mind that this association may be real. In addition, we look for biological plausibility and there's very clear biological plausibility that diet might be linked with getting an infection with COVID or getting sicker from COVID simply because we know that diet has such an important role in provoking inflammatory pathways and sort of being relevant to whether someone has good immunity to viruses. So all of that kind of mechanistic and biological evidence kind of supports that what we saw in our study was really potentially cause and effect. But you're right, I think ultimately there's a lot of factors that are at play. So we can't be 100% certain. There's certainly other things to look at, other studies that need to be done. Uh, but I think what we've done so far, and I think what the evidence looks like so far is that best as we can tell, diet does appear to be probably an independent risk factor for getting COVID-19 or getting sicker from the disease. And as you were doing the study, were you able to really kind of key in on specific foods in a diet that are more beneficial than others? You know, I mean, you can talk about your big anti-inflammatories, you know, your, your berry group, something like that. Uh, or is it ma uh, just more of a case of omitting uh, animal proteins, which you have just mentioned, your, your higher fat foods are more pro-inflammatory. So is it a benefit of omission or is it some specific component of uh, these plant-based foods that have proven to be exceptionally beneficial? It's a great question. You know, we had um, uh, some limitations in sort of how much of the diet we could characterize. You know, in order to collect uh, data from 600,000 people, you got to be strategic in terms of how you ask the questions about what people are eating. You can't go into really deep, long detail about every single food they eat. You really have to kind of get uh, the, the most important essential components of diet captured and, and use that to be able to, um, you know, survey a large group of people. So we had uh, the ability to really get data from almost 600,000 people because we kept our questionnaire relatively short and we asked them, what are the typical usual foods you eat? What are the, you know, most common foods and how much of those foods do you eat? And from there, we derived um, a dietary score based on how much of people's diet was plant-based versus animal-based, because there is very clear data that a more plant-based diet is more anti-inflammatory in contrast with a more animal-based diet, which tends to be more pro-inflammatory. And based on our study, we were able to see that those people that were in the highest grouping of plant-based diets tended to be ones that had the lowest risk of getting COVID-19 or getting sick from COVID-19. So it's a combination of the two things. One, it's it's kind of um, eating more of a plant-based diet is a kind of uh, uh, act that you can do of commission, uh, but it's also the fact that those people are the ones that tend to omit the, the animals, uh, animal diet, uh, animal products and the meats and the, and the, and the fatty foods. So having, um, that contrast is probably where we're able to see the, the real impact of diet. Are there specific foods that kind of are important to consider? There may be, I think that's something that we're really interested in kind of following up on in our future studies. And we're actually in the middle of some studies now where we are going to look at more specific food groups to see 
is there something um, beyond the general pattern of someone's diet that could also be uh, important to consider? Um, you know, I would say in general, you know, epidemiology studies of diet and chronic disease have tended to show that patterns of diet tend to be more important than specific foods or specific nutrients. And I suspect that's probably what we're gonna see with COVID-19, uh, but those studies are going on now. So we'll, we'll hopefully be able to, to uh, look at that data and, and, and make sure that um, you know, there isn't one very striking association between a specific food or food group with COVID-19 that um, could be uh, grounds for a more specific recommendation. But based on the data so far and based on the study you've done so far, it does seem like a more uh, plant-based pattern of diet is what seems to be important. All right. So here's the interesting question then. And, and I think given the limitations you've just described, your answer is probably just going to be a hypothesis here, but I'm going to pose to you the question nonetheless. So we've used the term plant-based, but anybody who's been to the grocery store now, especially in the frozen food aisle, you go down those aisles and you can see plant-based products for days, a lot of which aren't even healthy. You can even go to the drive-through, go to Burger King, get a plant-based Whopper and a big old fries, have that be a plant-based meal. Not exactly the healthiest there. Um, so if, if somebody were to go to the drive-through, get that plant-based fast food, crush that at least once a day, you know, what do you think their risk would be of COVID-19 compared to somebody who is eating that healthier end of the spectrum when it comes to a plant-based diet? Yeah, I think that's a very important point, Chuck, and thanks for clarifying. I think that plant-based diet, all plant-based diets are not equal. There are definitely more quote unquote healthy plant-based diets and the plant-based diets that are relatively unhealthy. And there and the unhealthiest plant-based diets may be uh, just as bad as sort of an animal based animal uh, uh, a protein-based diet. Um, and there's certainly versions of a healthy animal-based diet, which could be actually more beneficial than sort of your run-of-the-mill plant-based diet. So it is a, it's not just the fact that the foods that you eat are derived mostly from plants or animals. It's also the types of foods, how they're prepared, uh, et cetera, that are important. Um, and actually, that's what we showed in our studies. It wasn't just plants in general or a plant-based diet in general. It was actually what we call a healthy plant-based diet. And that's based on a dietary index that's been created um, you know, for other studies and other, and other settings, uh, which I think prioritizes those plant-based foods that are felt to be healthier because of their metabolic impact. Um, so, so I think if you were to look um, at you know, um, plant-based diets that were unhealthier, which were, as you say, comprised of, you know, a lot of processed plant-based foods or foods that were very high um, in, in um, uh, ultra-processed uh, food elements or preservatives, or, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of, of uh, healthy uh, plant-based fibers, you would probably see that that group of people either really had no benefit with respect to getting COVID or, or uh, uh, getting sick from COVID, or maybe uh, certainly compared to the healthy group uh, may have done worse. Um, so, so I think it just drives home the point that um, it is a dietary pattern that is important and maybe it's not you know, necessarily um, just 
you know, going vegan. It's really being uh, thoughtful about what kinds of plant-based foods you're eating. Here's the big question. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of people who feel like, well, if I'm eating a healthy diet, that is the best thing that I can do living a healthy lifestyle. That's the best thing I, I can do to protect myself right now. There are others who uh, say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm getting the vaccine. That's the best that I can do. In terms of comparing the efficacy of both, in terms of eating that healthy plant-based diet and getting the vaccine, can you say that one is outperforming another? You know, that's really uh, a difficult question. I don't think there's any real data that would be able to effectively compare the two interventions or put a number on, on, um, uh, on it at all that would be, um, that allow us to be able to make a recommendation of one versus the other. I think it's still very much, um, you know, a situation where we need to do all we can in terms of avoiding getting infected uh, and and try to do all we can to position ourselves to to recover as best we can if we happen to get infected. So you know our study is not meant to imply at all that people shouldn't be doing other things like wearing masks or where relevant, um, you know, um, staying uh, relatively socially distant or away from really crowded places uh, when infection levels are high. And certainly there isn't any um, uh, reason to think that um, a, a plant-based diet should substitute for getting vaccinated or boosted. So it's very much still a situation where, um, you know, all cards um, should be played in terms of preventing COVID-19. Um, and you really should do whatever you can to avoid getting infected and, and, and avoid getting sick. So that, I think, means a multi-pronged strategy of uh, vaccination, staying as healthy as you can in terms of your diet, and um, you know, uh, wearing a mask in a crowded space if, if you know, the infection rates are, are high in your community. And I think doing all of those things will put people in the best possible position to avoid getting sick. Is it 100%? Obviously not. You're still seeing lots of people getting infected, particularly with the variants, um, even if they're doing all of those things. Um, and and um, that's one of those questions that are still, um, you know, really bothering us as scientists is, you know, there's still a lot of COVID out there and there's still a lot of things we don't understand about what's putting people at risk for getting infected or getting sick. Um, and will things also change over time as more variants come around and as the, the levels of vaccination change, et cetera. Um, so there's still more work to be done and um, there's still more work to be done about diet. And you know, we still need to know in the future, is diet going to set us up uh, uh, to be um, uh, more healthy and less likely to get infected you know, for the foreseeable future as we start to deal with more variants? That's an open question, and I think something that we want to study as well. No, and I I do appreciate you answering that question because yeah, I I think it's important that whether it's with this or or anything else, really, you know, far more often than not, uh, one thing is not everything. So you, you, you want to combine as much as you possibly can to give you the best possible outcome. You know, we were talking earlier, I asked you about 
you know, whether it was berries specifically that are the key to anti-inflammatory things. And certainly they are uh, anti-inflammatory foods, but they're not the only anti-inflammatory food out there. There are plenty of other foods out there, plenty of other things that you can do to reduce your inflammatory response to things um, that will serve you well. So uh, I do greatly appreciate that that answer. Um, I want to switch gears with the time that we have remaining here, Dr. Chan, um, and tap into your expertise as a gastroenterologist and talk a little bit about gut microbiome. Um, because we've been talking here about COVID-19 today, but uh, your research uh, also also has shown that plant-based diets uh, can be really beneficial, uh, increasing um, gut microbiome um, that can lower the risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes and, and heart disease. Um, so when it comes to those types of chronic illnesses, I mean, what is it about a plant-based diet that creates this, this environment that is so good for the uh, gut microbiome to combat these diseases, which are really uh, plaguing, I mean, three quarters of the adult population here in the States, if not more. Yeah, that's another piece of the puzzle that's really important to kind of put into the uh, mix. I think, um, again, you know, gut microbiome is really uh, an area of research that's exploded. And we know that the gut microbiome is important in the development of chronic disease. We know quite clearly from a variety of, of, of studies that it seems to be playing a role in whether someone develops obesity, diabetes, or cancer. And increasingly, we're thinking that that link maybe in part through diet, that somehow that interaction between diet and gut microbiome is what's most informative uh, for the development of those diseases. And it probably is a bi-directional effect. It's probably an effect of diet probably promoting a certain gut microbiome that may in turn be linked to development of a disease, but it may also be that a gut microbiome utilizes what someone eats in a different way that ends up um, creating a metabolic situation that tends to promote or prevent diseases. For example, certain gut bacteria may break down dietary components and release certain metabolites or chemicals in the body that have either pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory activity. So um, it's a very much bi-directional association between what you eat probably influences what bacteria or what's in your gut microbiome, but the gut microbiome also takes what you eat and breaks it down in a different way to create a different sort of uh, metabolic uh, environment that may be more healthful or more uh, unhealthful. And that's been, uh, I think, the focus of a lot of our research when it comes to chronic diseases like cancer. And I, I really am uh, uh, um, quite optimistic that that'll be also the key to unlocking some of the uh, uh, differences that we see in how people uh, respond to COVID. You know, some of the folks that get particularly sick with COVID may be getting sick because their bodies are um, uh, you know, uh, set up in such a way that their microbiome uh, may or may not be able to sort of help uh, stave off an infection or may be um, developing um, uh, 
uh, interaction with, with the virus that develops into either a pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory state. So that linkage between the microbiome and COVID is going to be increasingly important. And then bringing diet into it may also be important as a way to intervene on, uh, uh, in such a way to sort of optimize your gut microbiome to um, make sure that if you get COVID, you may be able to overcome the virus in, in, a, in an easier fashion. Um, so this is, uh, I think, again, an area where there's a lot of convergence of research, research. There's a lot of folks that are focused on the microbiome piece. There's our group that's focused on the diet piece. And I think putting all those pieces together will hopefully really unlock some really important clues about what we can do to help prevent, again, the infection, or um, what we can do to also, you know, really um, uh, potentially uh, understand who's going to get sick from it. And it would be incredible if we could sort of uh, use the gut microbiome as a tool to risk stratify people uh, for uh, more serious outcomes, kind of understand early on who are the people that are potentially going to get the sickest. And then that will be a group that we can really focus our energy on in terms of preventing them from getting infected in the first place. And when they get infected, maybe deliver you know, the COVID treatments and the COVID care that they need earlier uh, to prevent them from really uh, declining rapidly. And final question for you. Uh, so many patients have been in the hospital with COVID-19. And, and I mean, even before that, you look at the, the food that uh, is, is served to patients in the hospital. Uh, nine times out of 10, it's, it's not the healthiest. Um, you work in a hospital yourself. You have to see these patient menus and you have to wonder, well, if we know even, you know, on our simplest form, like we should know that eating hamburgers and French fries and pizza and, and soda and things like that, these are all things that contributed to adverse health effects, right? These are the reasons why we are struggling so much with our weight, the reasons why we are struggling with diabetes, with cancer, all of these things. Yet it's also the same type of food that is being served to patients in hospitals. Have you ever pondered, like, is this really the, the time to be serving that type of food to patients? Or is this the opportunity then to really try to educate patients on making healthier decisions with their food and really helping somebody who's at that point when they're really kind of, in some cases, at rock bottom with their health, Dr. Chan, actually recognize, like, this is the time to make the change. And these are some changes that we should be making. That's a good point. And I think things are changing. I think they are changing for the better. Um, I know, for example, at uh, our hospital system, there has been a lot of attention to really, uh, you know, assessing the menu and being critical about what's being served uh, and trying to, you know, make it more healthy uh, and more um, in keeping with what we want our patients to be eating. Uh, you know, that being said, there's still work to be done. Um, and obviously, when you're in a hospital setting, there's a lot of sort of other things going on, a lot of complexity to patients' care, where, um, you know, diet um, sometimes gets very difficult um, to, to manage because of other factors. Uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't, you know, try our best. And that shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't be uh, any reason for why we shouldn't think about someone being hospitalized as being kind of a good teachable moment to get them maybe to think about their diet in a, in a way that will um, maybe 
um, convince them to make a more uh, lasting change that could have implications for them after they leave the hospital. Uh, I think that uh, the, uh, the hospital is, is, is um, not the only place that we need to you know, really focus our attention. I think we really have to focus our attention in other ways in terms of uh, the way our society is set up and, and the way our society uh, thinks about food and, and, and diet. Um, as you probably know, there's just all too uh, easy access to unhealthy, ultra-processed foods. Um, and I think that's something that was also borne out in our study is that we looked at the linkage between uh, areas of high socioeconomic deprivation, which tend to be those areas where um, access to healthy foods is lower, um, and uh, and diet, and we found that the the link between um, diet and socioeconomic deprivation were really tightly intertwined, and those people that had the healthiest diets and had sort of the best socioeconomic um, uh, status. Uh, were the ones that did the best, and those people that were uh, had the unhealthiest diets, who also had challenges in terms of socioeconomic deprivation, really had a much more compounded risk of getting sick from COVID-19. And I think that has to do with again access to to healthy foods, being able to um, go to a grocery store and pick up stuff that can be cooked with minimal processing, and and be able to um, really get at some of those higher indices of, of a healthy plant-based diet. Um, so it doesn't have to just be at the hospital level. It probably has to be more on a society and community level uh, so that we can um, uh, really think about um, where it is that we can improve our, our, um, our delivery of, of, of healthy foods and healthy food options to you know, communities that really need it. And final final question now, uh, in 30 seconds or less, uh, if those foods weren't so readily available um, throughout the country, I mean, you know, we're talking about food deserts, but even beyond that, if more than 40% of the population weren't obese, if more than three quarters of the population weren't overweight, how differently do you think the COVID-19 pandemic would have played out here? We'll just keep it specific to the United States. You know, I, I hesitate to put a number on it, but I would say, you know, one of the most apparent issues that COVID-19 brought out was the fact that there are these very significant healthcare disparities. And those healthcare disparities have to do with race, socioeconomic status, job status, et cetera. That all is intertwined as well with diet. Um, so if we were, uh, and there have been estimates made about, you know, trying to understand the differential impact of COVID-19 based on some of those disparities, if we could extrapolate from that data, um, that would give us a sense of where we would have been had we been able to offer uh, a better diet to a larger group of the population, um, you know, as one piece of, of that disparity. Um, so I think, I think that work will, will be coming down the pike. And I think uh, hopefully we'll really um, uncover how important healthy diet is ultimately to the health of our nation more generally for COVID-19 for sure, but also other chronic disease and, and uh, how it might hold the key to really improving public health long-term. 
The presentation is Diet Quality and Risk of COVID-19. Dr. Andy Chan, I feel like we have just kind of scratched the surface of what it is you'll be getting into at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine coming up August 18th through the 20th. I believe you're speaking on the 20th, um, and I'll certainly be uh, standing in the room that day, uh, paying close attention and just soaking up all the data because I've really enjoyed our time here together today, my friend. This has just been really invaluable information that you've shared with us. So thank you very much for your time. Great to be here. Thanks. And there's a link for you to reserve your seat right now for the conference in the episode notes, or you can just visit pcrm.org slash ICNM. But space is limited. Don't delay. Reserve your seat now. And there are going to be 30 speakers over these three days, August 18th through the 20th. Plus, we will be recording live episodes of the exam room throughout the entire conference. So please come on down, join us. We would love to see you there. Pull up a chair, watch a show or two as you take in so much great information over these three days. So pcrm.org slash ICNM to reserve your seat. Now, here are a few of the other names who will be presenting this year. Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Sarai Stancic, Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Alan Desmond, our good friend. Also, our other good friends, so many of them, Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero from Mastering Diabetes, Dr. Kim Williams will be there, as will Dr. Gemma Newman, Dr. Robin Chutkin, and so many others. And here's the cool thing. If you are a medical professional in need of CME credits, we've got you covered. They are available as are scholarships for nurses and dietitians. So pcrm.org slash ICNM is the website to visit for all of your CME scholarship and ticket needs pcrm.org slash icnm or just click the link in the episode notes and if you feel like you've raised your health iq by a point or two please subscribe to the exam room podcast by the physicians committee on apple podcast or on spotify and when you do please also leave a five-star rating it really does help us get this information to people who need it the most and Specific to our conversation about COVID-19 today, I think back to early in the pandemic when we began learning about all of the comorbidities that are associated with increased risks of COVID-19. And I remember asking Dr. Neil Barnard this on the show. I said, what would my chances have been if I were still 420 pounds and became infected with COVID? And he paused he had to search for the words. I'm not sure if it was because he didn't want to offend me or I'm not really sure, to be honest. But the difference between me then and me now and the risk of COVID-19 is immense. And so what that tells me is that with three quarters of the population here in the U.S., more than 40% being obese, three quarters overweight, more than 40% being obese, there are a lot of people who are at risk and who could use this information, which is why I do ask you right now to please subscribe to this podcast. And when you do leave that five-star rating and a nice review, a lot of people out there that could use some help. 
And I'm really glad that you are among the growing contingent of those who are helping lead us toward a healthier future. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Andy Chan for helping to raise our health IQs in a really fascinating conversation about his research on diet and COVID-19 today. I feel like we just learned so much. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>